but the mission remains largely exactly what it was uh, prior. I, I would, and I'm sure we'll get to this conversation, uh, but every um, new phase of the pandemic slash endemic, depending on one's point of view, ignites a different kind of element of discussion uh, between employees and employers um, that um, has a lot of my peers, uh, CHROs, uh, just fundamentally revisiting the relationship uh, and uh, how they can both retain and attract uh, employees in the midst of, you know, what is arguably the, the most turbulence that the labor force has seen since the Great Depression. You know, usually we'll introduce it first, but I think I like that introduction, <laughs> the way you said it. <laughs> so, so they will keep that in, but then now officially introduce Steve Pemberton from yeah. Work Human, Chief, Chief, what was it, what, Chief H, how, what's the exact title that you have? Chief, People Chief Officer? Human yeah, Chief Human Resources Officer. Now, what's the difference between Chief Resource, Human Resource Officer or Chief People? Or, uh, because there that isn't. seems to be... Okay. There is, no, Chief I, people seems to be the thing now, right? Or no? No, you know, and there's always a thing in HR, by the way, uh, about uh, rebranding. Um, uh, you know, the, the the term human resources is kind of fascinating. Um, if you went back to the 1890s and just kind of stepped through the business world, there's very few items, um, nomenclatures that you would see still with us human resources would not be one of them. The, the term was coined in the 1890s. That's how long it's been around and it's still with us. So it always goes through these attempts to kind of rebrand itself. Um, and, uh, you know, chief people officer, or, and uh, I'm not sure how sustainable it is because human resources is still with us. Hey, Mike, I think you have a question that you wanted to ask. Oh, sure, Steve, it's, it's good to have you on the show. And I, I'm curious, what have you learned with COVID and, and how your company has changed? Like, what sort of insights have you gotten that we that perhaps we haven't been reading in the mainstream media? Any insights that you've seen from, from your perspective? Great, great question, Michael. Um, you know, the word fragile comes to mind and tenuous. Uh, and uh, what I'm getting at specifically is the relationship between um, employee and employer, between executive teams and individual contributors, and how um, those you know, processes are all being fundamentally revisited. The way in which work is done, when you have multiple generations, four now in the workforce, you, you could argue, having come in at different times, executive teams, management teams, older by and large, accustomed to measuring success, how many cars are in the parking lot after past five o'clock, uh, how early are people getting in? That's all changed because since March of 2020, employees have said, you know, no longer is there a question about whether or not I can do my job remotely. No longer should you be wondering whether or not I can work in a hybrid way and still be productive. We've answered those questions. Uh, so now, uh, as we go through these different phases of, you know, potentially e emerging, you know, that relationship now has to be reestablished. Uh, employers, much to their chagrin, and executive teams in particular, I will point out, we're not in the driver's seat. We're not. Employees are. Uh, and they are dictating those, the, the way in which they're going to work. Um, and that should not be a source of angst for leaders in, in part uh, because this whole work and life relationship has been revisited. Uh, you know, um, humans have now been able to, you know, you, you, you're there for bedtime stories. Um, you're, I'm here to help my daughter with homework. Uh, you know, for example, you can walk the dog. I mean, just life, right? But you're also dealing with the pressures, the sandwich generation, raising young children, taking care of aging parents, and the expectation that their employer is going to be cognizant of that stress and reflect that in the ways in which they're willing to accommodate rather than being dragged back to our long commutes 
uh, and you know, no flexibility in terms of, hey, I want to drop my daughter off, uh, see her off on the school bus a couple of mornings, right? Those kinds of things are, are uh, what's made it you know, uh, uh, tenuous. And that's just my, my first reaction. I mean, there's a whole series of other things I think that are unfolding and will continue to. Tessa? Yeah, so Steve, I had a question, kind of going back a little bit to, um, you know, kind of when, you're, when your company found the need in the marketplace for uh, employers to really start to understand that money is not necessarily the only driver for commitment to a company or loyalty, but that gratitude plays a pretty large role in, in the happiness of an employee at work. So can you talk a little bit about what, at what point do, do employers come to you to say, we need to do something else. We need to, to meet a greater need that our employees have to feel loyal to our company. And you know, what's that opening that you have in working with, with employers to, to say, we can provide that, that gratitude piece, that mechanism to, to make uh, your employees feel appreciated? There's a number of factors that will drive that initial inquiry. Uh, retention challenges is oftentimes one of them. Uh, we are losing people at a record number uh, and we, we want to stop that. And as we conduct exit interviews, for example, company A says we realize that we really do have a retention challenge here and it is source and uh, driven by a lack of appreciation and gratitude that people feel for uh, the jobs that they do. It's that age old adage that, you know, people quit people long before they quit the company. Um, that, you know, your working relationships uh, with peers, with managers have as much to do with your loyalty to a company as your compensation um, uh, level does. Uh, and I think, again, the pandemic has accelerated all of that. Uh, culture, you know, specifically. Um, and um, I can think of one, um, you know, company that will go nameless that came to us several years ago and, and it was very candid and said, we have a toxic culture. Currency at this company is derived by who you can attack, diminish. And uh, it's been that way for so long that people don't know how else to behave. And so we need to set a, uh, you know, a, we, we got to, we have to create a lighthouse uh, for, for, for them. Um, and I think that comes from getting the values and the words off the wall and into behaviors and recognition and gratitude is the way to do that. Um, so for example, at Work Human, one of our values is urgency. Um, but if uh, we do not define that for you by what we mean in terms of urgency, it could look really, really different. Uh, and so I could call Laura in a real huff about something because I need this immediately and I would could not be particularly respectful to her. And, and I could justify that by saying, this is an urgent need I have, Laura, so sorry you didn't like my tone, but I got to get it done. That, that sounds very huff. familiar, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> we, we just went through that here. Literally, it says. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so how, yeah, yeah, you know what would be good? If you could say, how do you manage that? You know. For somebody who may be someone like me, how do you handle that in the future to do it more, you know, yeah. definitely? So, yes, yeah, so, so um, you're not changing the value in, in because the value is a value. That's urgency, respect for all, and you just keep going. But what you're doing in a moment, in a recognition moment, is you're defining what urgent looks like. So for, we'll take that same story with me and, 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 and Laura. And I, I have come to her with an urgent request. Uh, she works in marketing. I've got to get this campaign. I've got to launch it in Q1. Really need your help. Um, and, and Laura pauses what she's doing and helps me. Well, then what I do is I send her a recognition moment and I say, Laura, I, I know I came at your last minute on something that was urgent and that I needed. Uh, and I really do appreciate you pausing your other projects to uh, assist this need. And here is how that turned out. Now, in an ecosystem of gratitude, she and I appears, I should point out. So I'm not waiting, you know, she's not waiting for, for you, Jack, 
to say, okay, well, I recognize Laura for that urgency because you might not know that I've called on her in that way. But in the feed that is recognition, you see this interaction happening between the two of us. And so now you see, wow, um, Laura didn't talk to me about that in her one-to-one, -one, but I can see she really helped Steve in that moment. Uh, and that becomes part of your assessment and understanding of how she's responding to an urgent need. Now you multiply that over multiple values uh, and, uh, and as a consistent pattern and leaders begin to understand what is affirmed, what is celebrated and what is not. Um, and you can see how recognition begins to make those, you know, those cultural you know, shifts that as the age old adage goes, does indeed eat strategy for lunch. Um, and that the value, and I always will emphasize getting the values off the wall and into a common understanding and doing that by affirming the kinds of behaviors that you want to see and celebrating, recognizing those. Yeah, it's the how, right? The how people are doing that. So the behavioralizing of it, right? That you're reinforcing. That is so cool, Steve. So I'm, I was in this position a while back, but I think there's a unique challenge for companies that are focused on creating great places to work as a product, right? So uh -huh. that, that's the focus and that, that makes the bar so high internally, right? I mean, even the name of your company <laughs> creates this expectation or bar that for your own employees, you gotta be doing that, right? And I just was curious about any kind of challenges or lessons learned that you've had along the way around trying to meet this pretty high bar. I've always been fascinated by the, the general rankings or, or, along a whole series of measures. Great places to work, top companies for working mothers, uh, uh, top companies for corporate social responsibility. And my pause about them, although I do understand their value, there's best practices, methodologies that you take, all that's helpful. However, if one's not careful, it creates a culture of arrival. Uh, so, you know, once I'm on the list, you know, I'm a great company to work, so our work is done. Um, and, and that's a peril, that's perilous. Uh, um, and so we felt and do feel so strongly about that work human and specifically what human resources role is that uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, we changed the name uh, from human resources at the company to human experiences because that is what we're creating for our employees. So my, you know, out externally, I'm the chief human resources officer, but internally we refer to HR as HX and I'm the chief human experiences officer. Oh, yeah. uh, and I think it's just one of the things that we've learned is that it's our responsibility to create experiences uh, that excite people uh, that is connected to their sense of mission and, and our sense of mission, of course, and how they can realize their own you know, personal journeys at, at, at the company. The pandemic, I, I should point out, has only accelerated all of that uh, because it is this extension now of community. We lost community, we lost connection to one another and we still are battling this. So it's no accident that you're seeing, quote unquote, the great resignation or the great talent swap or the great quit, however, you, however it gets branded. It's no accident that that's happening at a time when people are fundamentally asking, what's the relationship uh, between employer and employee? And I should also point out too, you know, matters of social uh, un unrest and what is the organizational responsibility to addressing those, those things. As, as, as near as I can tell, I, I think it's because the workplace might be humanity's last best place to connect. Yes. Last best place to see some sense of humanity, some sense of goodness. Some affirming, some belief that despite it all, polarization and dissonance and carping, that there is still some goodness in us after all. Uh, and that uh, we want to know that there are places that we can find that uh, and that we can come together towards a common good. And when you struggle to see that in the broader world, and I would argue that we are struggling to see that in the broader world, it doesn't mean we stop looking for it as human beings. It's just, we have to now look in different places and where are people looking? They're looking to the places that they work. Yep. And if they don't find it, they're exiting, you know, in, in essence. And it's a fascinating dynamic.
it is. And the bar is so high, right? I mean, there's a lot, that's a lot of expectation on everybody who works in an organization, but especially I feel like leaders at this point, right? To be able to, to meet that expectation, it's tough. You have to build new muscle, Laura. Yes, I want to ask a follow up to that, because um, <clears throat> a lot of my research is actually looking at brand values and kind of the intersection between a company and the way that they treat their employees and then also the values that they espouse to their customers. So um, I think you bring up a really great point as far as these companies are asking to respond to a lot of these social issues, especially around social justice that we saw in the past two summers with, um, with the George Floyd protests and Black Lives Matter. And what ended up, we found out were that a lot of companies were woke washing, right? So they would hashtag BML, BLM, but they didn't actually represent or authentically um, operationalize those values within their organization. So what's your advice to those companies who have pressure on their brands to respond, but haven't done the work internally within their organization on the HR front? You're dealing with a, a savvier, you know, workforce, and um, who's cognizant of the distinction between statements of support and actions and behaviors. Uh, statements in and of themselves are no longer sufficient, and I would argue that prior to Black Lives Matter, the same thing was true uh, relative to the Me Too movement as well. And uh, it is the expectation uh, that uh, employers are going to do a little bit more than issue a statement and. In quite a few cases, uh, when companies have failed to do that, uh, the employees have really railed against the leadership. Uh, in a couple of instances, have actually unionized, but not unionized in the in the way that we have come to think of unionization. Unionizing to make sure that you are focused on 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 the greater good. If you look at the workforce that we are trying to attract. These are the things that matter to them. Those immutable demographics of any workforce. So yes, one's social consciousness, where you stand on climate change, uh, whether or not you are an ethical supplier, they are coming to us already with those expectations. Do you have employee resource groups uh, along those lines? What are your policies for, uh, uh, for new moms returning to the workplace? This is already you know, part of how they're approaching this. And if you don't have clear, concise answers and approaches, I can assure you that your competition does. And when you're dealing with some very competitive sectors, technology, as an example, uh, you will get outflanked by your competition very quickly because they are making and taking very clear positions and investments accordingly. I, I will say, particularly post George Floyd, uh, that a number of companies, though, have kind of recalibrated their mission to realize that there's just not the fiduciary responsibility to shareholders, uh, but there is a broader societal responsibility. The business roundtable modified their mission as, as an example. Uh, and in some ways, it's an acknowledgement that we have a responsibility here. It's kind of the antithesis of, you know, Friedman's school of thought. We have no societal responsibility as a company other than generate a profit. Um, I don't think that's true anymore. <laughs> I, I, and, and it's because the people um, who we're trying to attract are expecting this. And what happens if you don't provide that? Well, we talked about it earlier. They are, they are exiting. Uh, and uh, we're seeing every day uh, in the retail sector, in the manufacturing sector, they're dealing with staff shortages, certainly in the healthcare sector, right? They're dealing with staff shortages and the reasons why they are isn't just about paying them. It's not about paying people simply. That's, that, that in and of itself is, 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 is not enough. And then lastly, I would say um, the greater responsibility that organizations have to promote some healing in society. In all candor, if we cannot find it in our politics, and it appears that we cannot, um, at least in the, this current time frame, uh, and it appears that we have modes of communication vis-a-vis -vis social media that set us in opposition to each other purposefully, uh, where it becomes a business model. You know, there's a, there's a cost to doing that. And there's also a reaction to that. And so where am I again gonna find places where I don't have to live in that world of dissonance and clashing and 
um, it, it's, it's sitting on a project team um, than thinking about how we're going to take on a new marketing campaign, for example. Like we want to be excited and thrilled and not in this other world. Uh, I'd like to double click on the, uh, the, the statement you made about uh, outflanking competition, uh, which I think is really interesting. And with your service and all the changes that we've had in the last couple of years, uh, are there any changes that you've done to make sure that the remote workers aren't being overlooked, like we're recognizing them? And is there also any differentiation between people's personality types, such as extroversion versus introversion and how you're recognizing them? You know, I'll, I'll begin with the first, the, 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 you know, the first question. And it, when you really double click on this um, in terms of culture and getting the, the, the cadence right, uh, we've largely been forced into a remote way of working, but you, you have to work differently uh, because of the other thing that is not being talked about as much. And it is um, the, the home alone effect, as I've come to call it. Uh, you know, Kevin McAllister gets, gets stranded at home. And for the first you know, couple of days, it's a lot of fun, right? And uh, it's all good. But then after a while, begin to settle in the isolation uh, and this is where we have been for quite some time. Uh, I, I see that in our world where you know, people are exhausted, they're drained, they're on screens all day, um, uh, they're, they're helping their, their son or daughter with homework because school's been suspended because of a positive COVID test. Uh, I mean, a lot is on people. Uh, and um, so trying to create meetings that aren't about the meeting right and just how are you doing what did you get for christmas what is the most meaningful thing that's happened to you you have to be so much more considered about those interactions that often happened in the hall you know so i'd be walking down the hall and hey mike what'd you do this weekend oh you know i went i, I went to uh to a red sox game and you know in your and that's just a, it's a quick passing conversation but there's that interaction uh, and when we're getting on a screen and okay so here's the agenda and here's what we're talking through and work becomes transactional then so i think you have to be much more purposeful about the human interactions uh you know specifically because that does matter a great deal uh to people and then i, I think in terms of um how you know we're, we're continuing to connect and have conversations uh, about the human experience um one of the things that we have taken to is, is just a renewed focus on parents. That's the nature of our workforce. We are predominantly made up of millennials who are parents to young children. And so to be focused on um, that need that they have, uh, you looked at our Slack channels, uh, parent Slack channel, and man, the questions that come through there uh, about, um, uh, you know, how are you handling school and homework and all those things, you, you know, employees experiences becoming resources to one another is so incredibly valuable and so incredibly important. And it, I would argue it's an employer's responsibility to foster that. Uh, and lastly, I would say to recognize uh, the isolation that people are experiencing. Wherever we are 10 years from now, relative to the pandemic, uh, one of the markers um, one of the halo effects of the pandemic is going to be a renewed focus on mental health and wellness by employers. Uh, it is going to be um, is going to be a renewed uh, focus. I mean, I think it already is. It's just going to it's going to level up to an active discipline. Completely, I completely agree with you. And in a in a different way. I mean, I think what's been amazing is the support for people to get mental health support right to go yeah you should do that or i see a therapist you should go see a therapist but to me i think it's like the upstream part of that <laughs> like what role does work play in exacerbating mental health issues and mental health struggles mm. and how can we start getting into that right to me that's where the evolution really needs to happen um i think there's so much to that and i don't know if managers and leaders are ready for that, right? We don't have a lot of language for some of the things we need to have a language about <laughs> around things like you were talking about healing and recovery. And so anyway, I'm, I'm all with you on that. Um, 
I was wondering. We better get there, Laura. We better find that language very quickly. <laughs> There's some work, right? I'm actually doing a study right now with therapists um, around what they've learned from people who are working, so we can feed that back, you know, to organizations. So, yeah, kind of, kind of interesting. Steve, I was so, I'm so fascinated. I'm always fascinated about people's stories and their career stories. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could share with us, you know, how did you get here and what, what's kind of the, your background? Um, I think it's just fascinating to hear about that. Yeah, I, I, I should I, I should say that um, uh, um, it um, it's a book, uh, and and quite literally it is a book. <laughs> um, I uh, some years ago was asked by my then six year old son if when I was a little boy did I have a daddy, and I told him no, and he said, well, what about a mommy? And again, I tell him no. And my naivete as a young dad, I didn't realize that that was, that was not going to be the end of the conversation. And so I wound up writing a book about growing up in Massachusetts in foster care, uh, very turbulent, very dark, very difficult situation, managed to get to college, uh, Boston College specifically. And uh, the day after I graduated, I was alone and it struck me for the first time as odd that I didn't have family. I've been so accustomed to life without it that I didn't think it was odd until I saw all these families gathered and in essence went looking for my origin story and found it. Um, uh, and so wound up writing uh, the story uh, about it, thought it was for my children. Uh, it becomes a bestseller in a movie, uh, none of which I was trying to do to be candid. I was just trying to leave a legacy to them so they would understand as everybody should understand your origin story. Uh, boy, that teach me quite a few things. Um, you know, one that we all have a story and we don't look like that story. And um, the markers that so often define us in our society, our politics, our race, our gender, our religion, that is a, a part of our story, but it is not the entirety of our story. And because one big societal myth we have is that we don't see that. Uh, and the deeper, and, and I will confess too, by the way, that I didn't learn that myself until after this wave of reaction and response to my story came. I think it's true for any of us. You share your story, and what it really is is an invitation for others to share their stories with you. And when you do that, you see these common threads of humanity that, that connect us. Uh, and I think that often happens in the context of careers. In my 20s, I was a college admissions officer. Uh, in my 30s, I went through an entrepreneurial stage, I guess uh, you, might, you might say, um, that brought me to, uh, to Monster.com, uh, to Walgreens. I got into human resources in part because I'm always fascinated by this intersection of individual stories and the systems and structures that support them. I mean, it's just a fascinating duality to me uh, that emerged in so many different fields of study. Um, um, in sociology is agency versus structure. In psychology, it is um, nature versus nurture. Which of those things dominate? You know, it's always fascinating uh, to me. And I think human resources is a place where that, where that, where that plays out. Uh, and so I've done, in each decade, I've done something different with my life. In my 40s, I became an author. Um, and uh, now in my, in my um, 50s, um, uh, you know, as a chief human resources officer, a certain kind of relentlessness. But here's the thing that I, I learned um, uh, that I didn't fully understand, uh, that my life experiences had prepared me uh, for a lot of different things. Uh, and I think that's true for all of us, that it, you know, that every experience is, is a learning, actually, even if it might not feel that way in the moment, every, dis every disappointment, every setback, is really a learning that informs and guides and advises us on, on the next stage uh, of, our, of our life, in both our personal lives and in our professional lives. Uh, that's an amazing story, Steve. That's, that's um, for the audience, for now and then when we repost it. Can I tell you again, what was the name of the book and the film? So I'd love to share that so, so people could read your journey. Yeah, it's the same uh, title, actually. Same. It's okay. uh, A Chance in the World is the name of the book. And, uh, uh, and, and a quick 30-second story about that, the title, which yeah. A Chance in the World is a, is a colloquialism. Uh, you know, it's kind of one of those figures of speech. 
but um, that is not actually uh, how I came to the title. I came to the title because um, some years ago, um, a woman who babysat for me showed me her father's diary entry. And in her father's diary entry, uh, he was aware of the battle that my mother was having uh, with alcoholism and the battle she was having to keep her children. And he said of me uh, at one and a half years old that I wasn't going to have a chance in the world. And when I saw that diary entry, uh, I actually smiled because in a way it symbolized exactly what I was trying to get all along. And I think what any of us are either trying to find for ourselves or what we're trying to provide uh, to somebody else. And uh, so it's actually more of a life mission uh, as much as anything else. And then the follow-up book to that uh, is The Lighthouse Effect where I tell the stories of these 10 people that I met along my life journey. Uh, all different walks of life, none of them famous or particularly well-known, maybe with one slight exception, uh, and um, how I came to meet them and the lessons that I took from those meetings with them, which are far more fascinating than my own life story. Amazing, really, really amazing people. Uh, Steve, this is great. I and mean, this is why we love doing this because you just get some, just, I think the way we structure it is that you get real conversations and people like yourself could just talk and, and then before you know it, there's just so much wealth of knowledge and information that's part, it imparted. And I respect you so much for just being so open because it's hard to do that. And I give kudos to you for being so open about you know, who you are and what you've been through. It's, it's really amazing. On, on, a, on a lighter note though, so who played you in the movie? Yeah, so it was a wonderful uh, child actor. Uh, his name is Terrell Ransom Jr. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, Terrell's just, you know, from a different planet. I think an uh, elevated form of human species that comes down to visit with us for a while. Uh, he was really, really fantastic. Uh, you know, the way that I would liken to your, your life being translated to the big screen is if I, if I, um, took a memory uh, or asked you to just write down a memory, uh, something very significant in your life. Did you have that? We all have that, right? And I said, hey, I just want you to write it down. Just write it down for me. Um, and be as, but as, be as detailed as possible, as detailed as possible. And then I took that memory that you've written down and I created a movie set from that memory. And then you walked onto that set and your reaction would be a sense of location. So where am I? Am I in the present time or am I back in the memory? That's the effect that it has on you, which was what it was like to walk onto a set, see a younger version of you. <laughs> you know, it was- it was That's uh, so trippy. And nobody, yeah, exactly what it was. Exactly what it was, Jack. Well, nobody told me that. Nobody, nobody prepared me for that. Uh, but I, I, I've just been thrilled with, as I, as I thought it was, um, you know, it was your earlier point about being, um, uh, you know, honest uh, and, and, and open. And had I realized and known how important my story uh, was going to be to others who find themselves on similar paths, I would have done it much earlier. I think it's true for any of us. Sometimes the, sometimes the pain and struggles of our past is a present reality for somebody else. And they see in our victory, the possibility of their own. And so if you have those victories, you have to share them. Uh, part of what set my life in motion happened 100 years ago when my uh, grandparents, um, my great-grandparents uh, who were from Ireland, um, uh, succumbed to another pandemic, uh, uh, the influenza of 1918. And... Um, it sent my grandfather, Joe, off into foster care. He went through a same. So you fast forward 100 years later, I was a third generation to be orphaned. It was, this was a cycle. This was a pattern. This was a, wow. uh, and, um, you know, so the, now if you looked at, you know, to our earlier point about labels and markers, uh, my grandfather passed away before I, 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 I met him uh, year, the year before. So it was a year too late, always a source of regret. 
Um, but uh, if you put the two of us side by side, there's not a physical resemblance. And you would say, well, what in the world could those two guys have in common? There are different generations, different races, like this, this and um, we have a lot in common, almost identical narratives just set, you know, 70, 80 years apart. Wow, you're going to make me cry, Steve. I mean, this is not, I got, I, we got to sign off soon, so I don't want to embarrass myself by doing that. So, uh, hey, on, on a more, I, after we talked about this personal, just, if you don't mind, I wanted it for people who are watching this and will be watching it again when we post it, because with the social recognition, so that's internally, but do you do that externally as well? And I think, do you give financial rewards to people? So for people who are considering maybe purchasing your, your platform or your systems, mm -hmm. just so we understand a little better. Sure. So the, it, it is peer-based recognition. I'll just almost take like a, a, a case study or uh, uh, approach to it. And, and let's say that we're all working on a project together. It goes well. When we recognize each other, it's just not in commendation of language that exists on a platform and we recognize each other for the work that we do, but we then assign a monetary value to that recognition that again, that is peer driven. So companies uh, who work with us will assign a budget, uh, a percentage of their payroll to recognition. And they share that with employees and they say, here's a pool of money and it is for you to use to recognize each other. Uh, and um, so when we have that recognition moment and we assign a value to it, and then we go redeem that value for whatever we want. Um, and so I, I have three children. Uh, my, my boys um, have outgrown their, their big fellas, both division one athletes. I am no longer able to shop at, uh, you know, footlocker for them because they're size 15 shoes. I have been buying their shoes through recognition moments, Jack, and I, have, and I ordered them online. So and you're doing a good job at work so you can afford the clothes. Thank you. And it's getting expensive, Jack. It's getting expensive. But now, now because they're playing Division One sports, yeah. their teams are, so I don't have to worry about it anymore. But, yeah, yeah. but the boys... The boys would say, so dad, this is literally what they would say, I need some work human sneakers. I mean, that to them was like, you know, because it was just a process, right? Um, now, but you, you extend that out, right? It, it's, 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 you know, a family dinner, right? It's, it's the small things and you realize, okay, that is a connection point, right? And you realize that it is tying into one's life. Um, and so it's just not the transaction of buying something. It's more about the meaning and value that's associated uh, with it. Does it also go online though? Do you put it on social media or, or just you keep it internal when you do these social recognitions? We, we do keep it internal because, yeah. um, and, and that's subject to how the company, you know, wants to keep those conversations and those interactions. How, however, that's more about the detail, right? about the specific case. But, but beyond that, you will routinely see, certainly on the intranet that sits within the company, because that is a platform that we create. I mean, I have feeds as our CHRO, and I pull it up every morning, and I see just this, it's like a swirl of, of recognition moments. Wow. That I, there's no way I could see this on a daily basis. There's just no way all these interactions all these millions of moments of recognition that are happening. So it really gives me kind of a, 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 a pressure uh, test here. If I see on a monthly basis declining moments of recognition, that might signal to me, maybe people are getting tired and exhausted. We could be taking each other for hmm. granted. Uh, and it gives you a real sense for what people are experiencing. They will take that though to become part of their employer brand you know, as well, because I back to our earlier point about what are employees wanting to know about prospective employers? What is your commitment to matters of social equity and fairness? What is your commitment to one another? What is your commitment to growth and acceleration of one's careers? I think it's invaluable to say, let me give you evidence. Let me give you the behaviors uh, of that rather than saying, these are the things that we aspire to. So right before I, I, I jumped on, I, I got all of our executive assistants together who report up to me. 
And we were just kind of talking about the start of 2022. And my last message to them was about their career progression within the company. And at least two of the people who were executive assistants last year are no longer executive assistants because they have grown up um, upwards in, 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 in the company. And I was citing that um, for, uh, for Dana and Lori were the two people I was talking about as evidence for everybody else. And so it's one thing to say that, but you got to provide evidence of that. How did that happen? It started with recognition early on, Dana and Laurie's capabilities being recognized by their peers and affirmed over and over again. Now, for, for their managers and, and for me, I have to be thinking about that just a little bit differently. How long am I going to be able to keep Dana and Laurie when their peers know how great they are? They're told how great they are, but they're not getting promoted. They're not getting advanced. They're going to leave me. They're going to leave this company, who they love, by the way. They love the company, love who they work for. So there's the other side of this, making sure that from you know, a, a, a promotion and advancement standpoint, that we're recognizing that with behaviors. That's amazing. That's great. Can, can I, I want to be respectful of your time, Steve, but can I ask? You're a favor just to run something by you. Sure. But so but after about 17 episodes, I think we've had ish, we've learned so much from people like yourself that we were thinking maybe there's something that we could give back to the different companies and offer some sort of whether it's empathy training or some uh, you know, happiness training to companies. Do you think there's a market for that? Is there, a, do you think there's a corporate interest if, if we had some offering in mind of kind of what you do for your company and your clients, but a little different, you know, just to help out managers do a better job of empowering their workers and things of that nature. What, what, what do you think of that? Oh, I, I, I think that's it's beyond a, if you look at it from my lens, approaching me yeah. about something like that, uh, I, I would see it as not as a nice to, uh, which it probably would have been in all candor prior to the pandemic. Yeah. Um, most of my peers that I'm talking to are in a real battle to yeah. retrain and attack, to, to retain and attract talent, a real battle. Um, when a lot of the traditional levers have not worked. Do you, um, do you see, do you see any other companies that are doing this? What, what we're thinking of, like going out there and specifically doing that, how to attract, retain, you know, how to attract, recruit, retain people and all the ways to deal with mental health issues, burnout, isolation. I, I see a lot of, you know, smaller consultancies, smaller, um, you know, tackling it, but more from a thought leadership, you know, point of view. Um, like a big I, picture, but not actually giving the like, the, yeah, here's what you Laura, need to do. Laura, Laura's quick comment earlier about her reaction to what we do, and she said, you're talking about the how. It's the how. Yeah. Now, there was a time in the evolution of recognition where we were trying to convince you. Um, I don't think we're having to convince people anymore about happiness and wellness, uh, employers specifically. They get right. it now. They understand. What they do not know is, is the how do I go How about. do you get that done? Yeah. And <clears throat> but but their own self-interest in all candor is because they're going to see this as a as a way to uh, attract and retain people because it is a real real battle. If you're not, um, you know, if you're going to have people in environments where they're not um, feeling whole, they're not feeling celebrated, they're not happy, and they're dealing with drama and tension and you know, they're going to exit or they'll say, you know, I'll stay home and paint, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to, and I, and I'll gig my way to, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take multiple gigs as a way of sustaining myself financially, but I'm not dealing with all this other stuff over here when I'm taking care of aging parents and trying to figure out how I'm going to, you know, uh, get my kids to school. And they just, they, they've said no more, no more, nor do they want to fight about, um, their productiveness and efficiency and their ability to contribute. Um, and, and management teams in particular are coming around to that reality. And it sounds like the way you, you're describing it, 
because we were thinking, hey, is it do you do this in an app or platform? But hearing you talk about it, it does feel like you need that one-on-one, -on -one, that human-to-human -human interaction to help these companies and help these leaders and help these managers do a better job of watching over, you know, the folks. You know, give you an example, Steve Kinsey, when you mentioned about you talk about almost like a second-class citizen for remote workers. I don't know if you saw there's a sure, uh, Society of Human Resource Managers uh, survey, and and I'm shocked that they put this through and that the managers basically said, we forget about the remote workers and they're kind of annoying. And the workers were saying, hey, we're being overlooked. And this is from, you know, well, obviously given what you do, you're familiar with the organization. I was like, wow, that's, that, that, that's frightening. And, you know, that and all these conversations make us feel, hey, there, ha there has to be a better way to give advice to these companies to do better by their employees, kind of like what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, when, when you, you're going to have an overwhelming majority of people working in a hybrid way or, or, or remotely, you know, I, 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 ignoring them is just not an option yeah. because that will then contribute, further contribute to the great resignation. But I, I do think that you have to really define the routines and structures by which you uh, talk about that. I mean, we have somebody in our company who that's all they're focused on actually is our remote workforce because we, we have a globally remote workforce. Work Human is co-headquartered in Dublin, Ireland and in Framingham, Massachusetts. And so, but you have to have that dedicated focus and it's right down to a, you know, meeting case because we have meetings where there are people physically in a room and people on screen. Um, we've actually modified and shifted our technology um, uh, so that uh, I think about our, our executive meetings, for example, that our CEO, Eric Mosley, kicks off. And um, when he does, he's in a room and there are people in that room. But the majority of the time, because there are just as many people on screen, he is looking right at the camera rather than just talking to people in the room. Because if I'm doing this and I don't ever look at you, then out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. So, I, and I think unpacking exactly the behaviors, what that looks like and to be mindful and reminders of, that's that new muscle I was talking about earlier. And leaders have to develop a new muscle around managing and including a remote workforce, very purposeful about yeah. it. Steve, I love everything you've been saying. And what we're going to do is once we get this up and live and edit and clean it all up, really want to promote it because I would love for us to get what you're talking about in front of as many people as possible because you send such an empower, empowering, powerful message on so many levels. So I, I deeply appreciate you taking the time and speaking with us and just being so open and candid and nice. And, and wow, it just, it's, I think that's one of the reasons we do this. When people watch and listen to it, they could walk away with so much information and uh, and not to be crass, but then also, hey, they'll subscribe to your services and <laughs> get some more customers. So that's important. Let's be honest. That's important too. I can edit that last part out though. Steve, <laughs> I have to ask, because um, I, I did a little bit background reading and uh, I saw that Mrs. Sykes, I think was your English teacher who was incredibly uh, instrumental in your life. What high school did you go to? My kids go to Boston College High School. They're, they're eagles too, but they're, uh, my older ones headed to NYU, but what high school did you go to? Uh, I went to New Bedford High School. Oh, okay. Down, right. on, the, down on the South Coast. Um, and uh, uh, my, my oldest son, uh, Quinn, he is at Boston College. Oh, he uh, is? Okay. He, he went to, so, but he went to high school here in Chicago, uh, and he went to BC High's equivalent, which is Loyola Academy. Oh, two Jesuit, yeah. Yeah, two Jesuit high schools. But, but John Sykes, you're referring to uh, uh, John uh, was the high school teacher who uh, took me in when I was 16 years old. I quite literally had no place to go three days after Christmas. It was an incredibly desperate phone call to him um, uh, saying, hey, can I, my social worker said, can, asking if I could come stay with him for the week between Christmas and New Year's while they tried to find me more permanent placement. Well, they never did. And so I wound up staying my last year of high school with him. Wow. Uh, and John, uh, who we lost in the very beginning of 2021, you know, John was 
the embodiment of a lighthouse uh, for me. Uh, and in part because he performed one of the most important things that a human lighthouse can do. And it is that he turned my doubts into destinations. Uh, because, you know, to be honest, up until that point in my life, you know, the world had told me, we don't really have a place for you. You just don't quite fit in. Um, and, and he, in his own inimitable, mischievous way, he loved literature and poetry, uh, rode Harley Davidson's and drank Jack Daniels. Uh, you know, um, and he and I formed this bond um, that, uh, you know, will always be, he'll always be on the Mount Rushmore of, of my life. And that's why I dedicated the book to him. And he is the first chapter in the book and got to tell his story. Because I was always fascinated. Like, why did he do that? Like, why did that man uh, put his life on hold, basically, to see this young kid off to college who he barely knew. And uh, I, 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 there's some lessons in what he did for all of us, and there are. Amazing. Thank wow. you for yeah. sharing. Yeah, that. we gotta stop now before I, we all tear up again. So, <laughs> so yeah, so, I, I, I tear up every time I talk about I, him. I can imagine. I, wow. So thank really, thank you so much. Thank I appreciate you. the time. This was an amazing yeah, thank you. I enjoyed this just as much. I, I really did. And and let me help you promote it as well through my own. You know, so I love the format, by the way. I like the questions. They always get me to thinking as well. Uh, so I just want to, however That's I can great. help. Thank uh, you. I appreciate that. And we'll take you up on it, by the way. We'll definitely. Yeah, no, please, that. please do. I mean, I, I, uh, I want to encourage you to keep Excellent. forward. And one of the ways I can do that is Excellent. just by promoting it and helping you. I love that. Thank you so much, man. Thanks. Yeah. And, uh, yes. Right. Steve, this has been great to meet you. And I just want to let you know, I also teach an undergrad course called The Psychology of Well-Being. And I, I took a look at the trailer for your movie and I'm going to be assigning it to my freshmen because oh. I think it's important that they, uh, that they see that side, that you know people have different, different experiences. I think it'd be really useful for them. So right, I appreciate Mark, you telling Michael, us Here's what we'll do. Here's what yeah. we'll do. I, open invitation, no obligation. If you want me to join a Zoom call with your class, Yes, look at that. Yes, yes, <laughs> you will come. <laughs> Wait a minute, but be careful. That happened to me, and this is we ended up with this podcast. So you yeah. might end up being on the podcast here as, as a regular. So be careful. I don't know how it sucks us in, but that happens. So. I, I, yeah, I'm just going to say yes, and we'll, uh, we'll we'll get you the date that you want. So you get to pick the. We have 25 classes, so I'll give you the date I that you like, it. and I'll uh, reach out for that. Thank awesome. you. Awesome. Excellent. Thank oh, you so cool. much. Thank you so much, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Bye-bye. Thank you, Steve. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye.